We are in an all-out culture war. Last week, I began the first sermon in this series, making the case that our first step in winning the war today from where we are in our Western vantage point, where we've gotten ourselves to, is to realize, to acknowledge that we are, at, in fact, at war. That actually is what's taking place, and that it is supposed to be this way. We walked through Joshua chapter 23 last week, most of that chapter, and in that chapter, we saw the conclusion of a period of time in Israelite history where they were at war against the wickedness in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to his people. And Joshua, the commanding general of the people, had gotten them all together, and we, we saw a little bit of that story play out. And I remember asking the question last week that I think is important for us. We saw that God is the one who had fought the battles. He's the one who had cleared the way. He's the one who had given the Israelites victory over their enemies in the land of Canaan. And yet, at the end of their lives, when he gave them rest, when God sent them back to their homes and told them that they had been faithful, commendable, there were still enemies left in the land. The question that I asked is, why would God leave enemies rather than just finishing it all off right then? The answer was given explicitly in Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to repeat those verses for you now. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. We must start living, training, and strategizing to win this war. I spent some time trying to show you the comparison between the days of Joshua's conquest and the days of the Great Commission now. Under the old covenant, God sent his people into an isolated region, a land, Israel, the promised land. And he told them, clear the land of wickedness, purge it. And they were to continue to press the battle until every soul in that land worshipped and honored God. That was what they were told to do. I showed you last week how in the new covenant, that has been turned from a attack into a singular nation, a region of this world, turned inside out so that believers would take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That the new promised land is the world. And we have been sent for every bit as great and violent of a conquest that happened then. Even if not physically, with swords and shields and bloodshed, but that we are to proclaim the shed blood of the righteous one to all the earth and in so doing subdue it until every single soul in this new promised land would repent and turn in faith to Jesus and worship and honor him as Lord. That is our great commission. It is a new time of conquest. It is the new covenant version of conquest. And we see many comparisons to the old covenant version of conquest. 
One thing that I think is a shame, and I said this last week also, is that that generation was a generation of warriors. They were commendable before God. They were not perfect. They had error. There was sin. But God continued to lift them up in regards to their faithfulness and tell them of their faithfulness and try to tell future generations of their faithfulness. And it's a shame that too often, because of our kind of squeamishness about physical war-like conquest in the Old Testament, that we don't acknowledge and celebrate the good things we could learn from that kind of generation. So before we move away from that time period, from that generation, I want to, in the next sermon in this series, I want to just spend one more chapter looking at that faithful generation, asking this question. What was it about that generation that makes them so commendable? I'm going to take a look at some of those things and see what it is. What did their faith lead them to? This is super biblical to do this. We're in the book of Hebrews right now, in Hebrews chapter 11, as we've been walking through for a couple of years, almost two years maybe now, uh, in the book of Hebrews, maybe a year and a half. And we're watching the author say, hey, new covenant believers, don't forget about the faithfulness of the saints of old. Be encouraged and warned by what you see there. Let's do the same with Joshua's generation. I'm going to go ahead and pray this morning. Our text is going to be in Joshua chapter 22, verses 10 through 34. And it's a, it's, a long, it's a long bit of text. You can follow along. I will have those slides up on the screen. You can follow, but I think it'd be great for you to open your Bibles if you have them with you. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, uh, then give you the backstory and dive in a little bit, uh, a paragraph kind of at a time. Let's do that. Father, this morning as we turn our, the pages of our Bible back to the Old Testament, We are not only going back 2,000 years in history to New Testament days. We're going back almost 2,000 years farther than that, Lord. 1,400-something years farther than that. And we we acknowledge the bridges we need to build in our minds, and we think about culture stuff that helps makes it hard for us to understand then. And we're in a new covenant era, Lord, rather than an old covenant era. We need help even uh, discerning how to see certain things different now. But Father, I pray that we would love your word, even these Old Testament passages like this, that we would learn from the faithful saints of old, that we would uh, be encouraged to do the things that they did in faith, and that we would be warned to not do the things that they did in a lack of faith. So Father, serve us well, we ask through this word that we may worship you more, love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This story, of course, takes place after the Israelites had completed a five-year military campaign to establish a foothold in the promised land. Joshua gathered the people and divided the land up among the 12 tribes of Israel for their inheritance. And each tribe was then sent to settle their new home territory. Now, before the campaign had even begun, while the Israelites were still on the wilderness side of the Jordan River, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh had identified an appealing land that was outside of the promised land. And since they had a great number of livestock, and that land was especially suited for grazing, they went to Moses and they asked him for permission to settle that land rather than cross over the Jordan with their brothers and sisters. Well, Moses and the priests conferred about this and eventually agreed that they could do that on one condition, that the fighting men of that two and a half tribes would go with their brothers into the promised land to wage the war needed before they'd be allowed to return back to their families on the east side. 
So now we fast forward to the end of Joshua's conquest, which brings us right up to here again to Joshua 22. He gathered the people together, particularly those of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, in order to discharge them from their military duty and release them to go back to their families and to their land east of the Jordan River. And that brings us up to verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So you see what's happening so far right now in the story. About two and a half tribes have been sent to go back to their home. But before they crossed over the Jordan to go into their land, they stopped. And on that side, on the rest of the tribe, the ten tribes' side, they built an altar. And it was no small thing. It was an altar of imposing size. It would have been made of stones that were not hewn by human hands. It would have just been bare rocks built into a giant pile. We know this because later in this story, we're going to find out that they made this to be a copy of the big altar built to the Lord at Shiloh. Shiloh was kind of that central uh, city uh, that was really the capital of Israel until Jerusalem would eventually take over that, that position. They built a copy of it and put it there on the Israel ten tribes side of the Jordan River before they crossed over. Well, people in the land heard about it. They all began to be concerned. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. This generation had been warring for the last half decade. They'd been in the wilderness prior to that. There was even more wars happening back then, more battles happening back then. They had just put their swords and shields away. They'd just kind of been finished. Ah, oh, the Lord has given us rest. We're able to go back to our homes and settle. And then they hear of what happens with this altar, and they gather together at Shiloh and once again put their gear back on. This is what happens next. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. That's where, they, that's where the land was. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. So, it's interesting to note that the way the author wrote this, he hasn't yet told us why they're upset, why they're going to go make war against their brothers. They haven't told us this yet. It's interesting the way the story plays out. Nevertheless, they sent a delegation of 11 men. That's 10 to represent one of each of those tribes that are on the west side of the Jordan, and then one representing the tribe of Levi, who is a, a priest. That 11-man delegation was sent across the Jordan to go confront the eastern tribes. And this is what happens next. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? And turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? 
from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. I want you to notice these delegates, these representatives speaking on behalf of the whole assembly of Israel at Shiloh, they make two assumptions. Let's just, let's just categorize these two assumptions. Assumption one, they assume that this was an act of false worship. Israel thought that the building of this altar signified a breach of faith by their brothers. They saw it as an act of rebellion against God. That's the first assumption. Now, just for clarity, and so you see this, why would the people make this assumption? When they see a pile of rocks, why would they assume that that was false worship? The answer, quite simply, is because God had only authorized one singular place of worship to be built, just like that altar was. Back in Deuteronomy 12, when all the tribes were still present and together, God said that when the people entered into the land, he would choose the singular place of corporate worship. There's only one place for burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, one. And he said, listen, you can burn meat and eat it anywhere you want. You can, you can cook your, your food in other places, so don't be legalistic about, about uh, where you can uh, literally burn any kind of animal but you may not offer those as sacrifices except for at the one place. You have to travel if you're going to do that because I have chosen one spot and actually it would be Shiloh. It would be Shiloh for generations. Eventually, hundreds of years after this, it'll eventually become Jerusalem, but that's not there yet. God chose Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle, that portable temple was, the singular altar. And these people knew another one, a copy altar is built over there. This is one of the obvious problems with Mormon temples. If you, if you come from a Mormon background here, uh, I maybe wonder, like, why is it that Christians have such a hard time with these temples? Weren't there temples in the Old Testament? No. There was one temple in the Old Testament. There was one. And if that one got destroyed, it was new one was built in its place. Why? Because God said there could only be one place of worship. That's the only thing. You come here. They didn't have cars. They couldn't fly. I don't care if it takes you six months to get there for that. There's only one you're allowed to go to. This is one of the reasons that Christians see such a, an oversight in some of the thinking of multiple, more 155, I think, Mormon temples now these days. So that, that, that's one of the things Christians see so boldly wrong about that. So this group of Israelites saw that altar and said, that altar looks just like the singular one God commanded us to build. These guys must be false worship. The second assumption they make is that God would punish the whole assembly for not dealing with this sin. See that? That's the second thing. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. They didn't play the none of your business card. They're like, uh, it sure is my business. Because this breach of faith it will be judged and me and my children will be under that fire. That's what the Israelites said. Now, Ask the question again, why would they make that assumption? 
Well, because he'd done it before. God had judged them before. At Peor, they, they re- referenced that in their discourse right here. They mentioned Peor. That was an occurrence that took place back in Numbers 25, where the people of Israel hoard out themselves with Moab. They, they gave their daughters into marriage with the daughters of Moab, and they joined them in the worship of false gods, namely Baal. God brought a plague upon the whole house of Israel. 24,000 people died in that plague that followed. This generation is still feeling the effects of a 24,000 person hit for that sin. They rightly feared that if they did nothing, God would judge their disregard as complicity and he would strike the whole nation for this false worship. That's why they were willing to take such drastic action. They saw this altar as a sign that these eastern tribes were worshiping either a false god or trying to worship the true god in a false way, both of which would be things worthy of attack. This generation had learned their lesson from the event at Peor, and they did not want to repeat those errors. And they go on. They give yet another reason. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Now they recall the story of Achan. Achan was a man who was one of the warriors who went into the promised land. He was present when God took out the first city, Jericho. You may remember the story. They marched around the city seven days, and on the seventh day they blew their trumpets and the walls literally fell down. That city is still in Israel. You can actually go over there now and visit it and see the walls fallen exactly as God said he did it. God did this great thing. They move on to Ai, the next city. But they lost the battle against this little city. A bunch of Israelites died. And they went to God. They're like, whoa, whoa, you said you were going to fight our battles. Why would you desert us? And God told them, because someone in your midst stole what belonged to me, what was to be devoted to destruction. The man named Achan had taken some of the things that were devoted to God. They were supposed to be burned up to him. He stole them, took them back to his tent, buried them into the ground so no one could find him and thought that it would be a private sin no one would have to ever realize or deal with. Not only did Israelites die in battle, but God eventually, by the casting of lots, pointed. It was like a a sovereign finger of God pointing down. That guy did it. No witch hunt necessary. God said, I will show you who did this. And Achan admitted it. And God killed his whole family. See, he did not perish alone for his iniquity. The Israelites know that there will be collateral damage for those who are wicked. You can't play that whole, if you're an Israelite here, you can't go like, well, let's let them do whatever they want. God will deal with them over there. That's, just, that's on them. No. We know what happens here. So this is the charge now from the 10 tribes on the west side to the two and a half on the east, okay? What follows next is the response from the eastern tribes. Uh, this is a kind of a longer section. I'm just going to read through it because I don't think there's a lot of explaining to do. It's just very clear what's being said. Let me read through the whole account. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows 
and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So how do they respond? Were they offended? Indignant? Was there fear, anger? No. They explained that their actions were honoring to God and to their nation for the sake of their descendants. And what did the ten tribes do? When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So how did they respond? They received this as a gift from God and it united them further with the other tribes. Wrapping up the story, then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So in the end, what do we see from the people of God? Worship. They were pleased. It was good in their eyes that their brothers and sisters on the other side of the Jordan did this thing out of faithfulness rather than out of unfaithfulness. That's our story. The historical account in Joshua 22 I want to close by making four observations about this generation that we see taking place in this event. Things that I think that we would do well to take stock of and even apply to our lives today. 
It must be said that this was done in an old covenant context where war, where bloodshed was the God-designed way to purge wickedness from the midst of the household of Israel. In our day, it's not bloodshed that kicks out people who have brought wickedness in. There are differences, but there are many things that we can take here and apply even today. Here's the four. Number one, this generation was zealous for the right worship of God. Note, this was not a private act of sin between one man and God. This was a public display to the world. If it really was a wicked sign of rebellion against God, then it demanded a response. Of all the things that have happened over the course of this last year in our nation, I personally have been most disappointed by the response of Christians. Christians. We expect the world to act with folly. We expect the world to act in wickedness. We expect them to act out of nonsense. But when we see it happen with believers, it's heartbreaking. It should upset us that God is not being worshipped the way that he has commanded us to worship him. It should upset you when you hear of churches that almost a year after the COVID madness began continue to persist in neglecting to gather together as commanded by our Lord. It is okay for you to feel anger about that. It is not right for Christians to dishonor God in such a way. This is not to say that there's, there's no place in which we have to offer grace and not certain about exactly how to play things out. One thing can be said to be for certain. A year is too long to forsake the gathering of the saints. It is a habit by now. Christians continue to capitulate to pressure from the world. And I'm talking about social issues like you know uh, that have happened all throughout this last year, election madness and, and BLM junk and all kinds of responses to worldliness. So many believers and Christian-designed and built institutions have rolled over to the advancing worldly agendas. But a story like this reminds us that we must hold one another accountable. Have you not forgotten the first three chapters of the Bible? God made everything, and then he made mankind as the crowning jewel of his creation. More so than the angels, more so, more so than the heavenlies, he makes mankind, and he tells mankind, subdue the earth. Bring it under your dominion. Everything will fall under your authority here on this earth. He puts the man in the garden to work it, and he gives them all of these trees and the fruitfulness that's there to enjoy and says, but there's one tree that's mine. And you and I know by Genesis 3, Eve was deceived by the serpent and she took of the forbidden fruit and she ate of it. But one of the most notable things about that account in Genesis 3 is that it says that as soon as she has this little interaction with Satan, the serpent, when she takes of this fruit, breaks the law of God by, by taking a bite, it says next, she turned to her husband Adam, who was with her, beside her, next to her, and gave it to him. It's just amazing to see this man was standing right there, 
and observing what was taking place and saying nothing. You know, later, 1 Timothy chapter 2 will actually say, the woman wasn't deceived, but he does not have that excuse. He knew what was going on. He was not ignorant. It was bold and willful sin. Literally, at the very inception of the fallen state of our world, we have complicity. Because Adam stood by and said nothing. Well, so it's not on me, it's her. How did we get here today? Because that same sin persists. Christians have put up with their own brothers and sisters awful sins, sometimes saying that that's done in the name of Jesus. You ever look back at the sins, the ills of our nation, of our country? How is it that people who called themselves Christians could have and so mistreat slaves because of how they looked? How? Because the other Christians didn't do anything about it. How in the world could in some of the most Christianized parts of our country, could people so hate their fellow even Christian brothers and sisters of color by not letting them drink at the same water fountain? How could this go down? A lot of those people who did that were members of churches. Well, it's not for me to judge what they do. What? You wonder how we got here. The approval of and the refusal to say anything about sexual sin, any kind of folly that enters into the church world. You know, the world has been telling us, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. And we're always just a few steps behind the world. But the Christian church continues to follow that. And now that they're well beyond the don't judge into judge whatever we feel like judging, Many Christians are still mired in the don't judge, don't say anything. Well, didn't the world tell us we're not supposed to judge them? We're not supposed to judge those even inside the church? Even in the local church, Paul commands us to purge the evil from among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He even tells us of the of other churches. You could even do this outside of your individual local context. He wrote an entire book of the New Testament in response to Peter's conduct among the Galatians. You might remember that whole situation. Peter starts to buddy-buddy up with a certain group of, of Christian thinking, and he didn't say anything false. He didn't preach a false gospel, but he begins operating, like behaving as though this view of circumcision only was the right way, and he, he distanced himself from the Gentile Christians. And Paul furiously goes after his brother Peter to make sure that nobody follows in to that error. There are many Christians today who are more concerned about keeping peace between churches than they are about obedience to God. For these believers, it seems that they would rather tacitly approve of all kinds of sin amongst the people of God than confront what he hates. This weakens us. We need to get strong together. We need to do more theological battles together. We need to be ready to even deal with the issues in our own ranks. But some might say, well, what about Christian unity? Well, it doesn't seem to me like this commendable generation was too worried about that. They were more worried about faithfulness than they were about keeping the peace amongst their brothers. And remember, it was Jesus who said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, even inside of a person's household. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, this is fascinating to me. When you come together as a church, as a church, what is he, who's he talking to? Believers. 
When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, ready, this is the time where Paul should be saying, don't divide, just, just, just unite, stop making a big deal, stop judging your brother, just unify. No, listen to what he says. I believe this in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see that? Have you ever stopped to realize that conflict, even divisions within churches, are God-designed preservation mechanisms for the gospel? Look, this is how this works. It's not hard to see this. A whole church or a whole, or a whole society filled with different churches goes one direction together. They're honoring the gospel. And then some churches or individuals within churches start saying, well, what if, what if you don't need to believe in Jesus to be saved? Well, well, what if you could have sex with whoever you want because God is love? What should true Christians do? If necessary, divide. We will not follow you. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We must recover a zealous resolve for the right worship of God amongst our fellow Christians. We've got to start here. The Christian church has become a mess of false beliefs. And I'm not talking about little nitpicky theological things that we're going to deal with until Jesus returns. I'm talking about the big rocks. What you believe and how you worship matters. And the world is watching what we do and how we relate to our God. I said last week, the world does not take us seriously. And for good reason, because we've walked around following them like little puppies. How can I make you happy? What do you want from us? Am I pleasing you today? Can, we, can you play with us? Wrong. That can't be the way we deal with the world. That is not respectable. No wonder they don't respect us. You and I must see that even these Israelites had a source, an objective source for truth. They could not have confronted their brothers on account of the altar unless they knew what God's word said about altars. They had to know that. We too must become more discerning with God's word. It is critical that we hold a high standard of scriptural integrity. If we don't, then any critique that we might have for brothers and sisters will be subject to preference rather than what God says. And listen carefully, you should not care one lick about the opinions of man, but of what God says. I know many Christians who think about judgment and they imagine that there are only two speeds. Don't ever, ju don't ever judge anything or become the witch hunters who nitpick every single part of everybody else's lives. Okay? This is called the fallacy of the excluded middle. Don't believe that. There's only one or the other. You can either judge no one or judge everyone. That is, that is folly. And that brings me to the next point. First point, again, was that these believers, these people of God, were zealous for the right worship of God. Number two, they were compassionate toward their brothers. Don't miss this. They were prepared for battle. They had brought their guns to this knife fight, and they were prepared to do what was necessary. But their first appeal, remember, was for peace. Do you remember that? They didn't take the army across the, the river. 
They sent 11 against thousands. And more than just that, remember what that delegation said. I'll read to you verse 19 again. This is, this is in the charge. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. They were willing to give up some of their own land, some of their own inheritance in order to ensure that they were all collectively honoring God. This generation was not a bunch of violent and barbarous legalists as some modern revisionists would like us to believe. They were wise and discerning, merciful, even self-sacrificial. And they desired peace with God and with their brothers. Our desire for purity and worship must be tempered with tons of generosity, patience, graciousness. We should be slow to judge and quick to forgive. Using today's illustrations again, consider where we are right now. There are churches today that are dishonoring God because of the decisions they've made about worship or not worshiping. Should we as believers who have chosen where we are make it difficult for those believers to enter back into that fold? No. Well, you can't get back in. You're not not back into the the faithful club until you uh, genuflect a little bit. Jesus told a parable one time about the prodigal son. And the point of that parable largely was in regards to the older son. The younger son, the younger brother runs off, spends his inheritance, squanders it away. And after realizing his father, he comes back to his father who runs out in love to greet him. What happened to the elder son? He got all indignant. He ran away. Why did I get more good? We never, ever can be like that. We should be standing on the side of orthodoxy and faithfulness and quickly receiving anyone who rushes across onto that side. Welcome to the battle, brothers and sisters. The Bible tells us that there are different responses for different issues. I think of 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There are pastors, church leaders, who have not been leading their people well. Some of them need admonishment. Shame on you for leading like that. That was idleness that produced that decision. But there are others that might need encouragement. They know what's right, and they know what's wrong, and they're struggling, they're holding a Bible, and they're seeing the world, and they're nervous. They're shaking from it. Well, what should we do? Come down, you cowards. No, no. What do you do with the faint-hearted? You encourage the faint-hearted. First, get courageous so you can share some of that out. Hey, 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 we're with you. It's okay. Let me encourage you. You can do this. You can do the right thing. That's how we would go. How about those who know that? It's not a courage issue. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to do what God wants. I, I don't know how to do this. Help the weak. Help them. You see that? This is, a, this is a generous, loving help to those brothers and sisters who will not side with us. This is not pretending that they're okay where they are. This is not okay. You should not be there. You should not be living like that. You should not be honoring that kind of church right now. You shouldn't be doing that. But let me help you. Let me help these Christian brothers and sisters. This is how we're going to get there. Revisiting again the first two points, the observations from this passage. This generation, they were, they were zealous for the right worship of God. 
They were willing to divide and even die for that. Second, they were compassionate toward their brothers, willing to sacrifice, to lose some of their own benefits and blessings so that the whole congregation could remain faithful together. Next, the two and a half tribes, upon hearing this charge, this rebuke, based on the two assumptions we talked about, how did they respond? With humility and graciousness. They did not respond with indignation. How dare you accuse us? Who do you think we are? Who do you think you are? What was their response? Oh, man. So different than our responses today. They approved of the 10 tribes' zealousness. They saw their brother's ardent commitment to pure worship, and they heartily agreed. I'm going to read for you again what they said in verse 22. If it was rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. Brothers, you are right to be concerned. You are right to love the pure, true worship of God. You are right to pick up your swords. You are right to prepare for battle. Because if that really was true, wipe us out. How awesome. How humble. How God-honoring and gracious. Listen, you, you personally, you need Christian brothers or sisters in your life who do this with you. You need to sit across a coffee table with someone who will look at you and go, I think you're wrong. I think that that's sin. You, you, you seriously need someone to do this in all the parts of your life. You need someone to look at you, listen seriously, and say to you, I love you. Your kids are brats. You need somebody to look at you and say, that is no way to treat your wife or your husband. Oh man, you need people willing to do that even when they're wrong, misperceived something. Oh man, and then you need to respond humbly. Now I know you love me. Now I know you care more about me than how I feel about you. You're willing to put our relationship on the line with a gentle rebuke because you care about what God says. You care about what his word says. I've celebrated one of my dearest brothers many times, Jason Wallace, one of my most faithful brothers out here. He's a Presbyterian pastor. We get together regularly just to revel in the goodness of God that we get to do ministry in a similar place and in a like-minded way as well. And Every time, guys, every time I meet with this guy, uh, if you don't know, Presbyterians baptize babies. Baptists like me don't baptize babies, okay? And every single time we get together, as we're talking, he pauses somewhere and he goes, now, brother, you need to start baptizing your kids. You've got to do this. And he pulls out another book and hands me and they had another book. And so I pull out a book and I say, read this one. It says not to. <laughs> um, but you know what? That brother, that, I, I love that brother. You know why? Because I know he's not just trying to make me like him. I know he's actually trying to do what he thinks the Bible says. And the reason he has that conviction is because he loves this. That's a good brother. And we can go to war together like that. Are you tracking all these pieces I'm saying? I am not saying uniformity in every possible variance of belief. You're hearing me say this, right? And you're hearing the press from brothers and sisters of the faith who aren't afraid of coming into each other's lives and holding us accountable like Adam should have done, and like these people did do, like Paul did, like Jesus did. 
The faithful saints of old were not afraid like this. You need Christian friends like that. And you need to respond humbly. David says in Psalm 141, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. There are occasions when I'm just talking in a group of pastors and they're looking for good counsel on how to deal with some issue with another brother or sister in the faith. And on an occasion, I say, push back, tell them they're wrong and see what happens. Because honestly, it can be a test of a person's heart. If a person responds with hard-heartedness, how dare you tell me I'm wrong? Brothers, sisters, don't let that be you. Inspect your heart. Seek to do what is right. You and I need thicker skin than we've been known to have as Christians in this previous generation. And this is such the essence of the gospel. The gospel you and I are sinners. We were born into this world as sinners. We came out of the folly and sin of Adam, who did nothing and then likewise took of the fruit. Everything goes into corruption. Nothing is untouched by it. You and I live unholy, wicked lives as enemies of God. That's how we were born into this world. We do not deserve heaven. We do not deserve good. We do not deserve blessings. And any of that we get is just because of God's mercy in our lives. We deserve judgment and separation from him. And yet, in his overwhelming mercy and love, he sends his son to be the only one to truly live fully, holy, all his life, zero imperfections, perfect from beginning to end. The only one in all of history. If you were to sit across the table and try to rebuke, that you'd be wrong, or that they would certainly never be able to have that charge against them. He was holy and perfect. And yet he was sent to the cross to bear the weight of sins of the world. You and I deserve punishment that Jesus bore on the cross. And if you believe in him, if you repent of your sins and turn in faith to him, all the judgment due to you will be counted as judged on him. So when you stand before our judge and master of the universe in heaven someday, and you deserve hell, and God says, why? Why would you get into my heaven? For you to say that all those wicked sins have already been punished in your son. That's the only hope for you and I. And it doesn't just stop at the moment of salvation, but we are to live a life of repentance all the days of our life. Lord, I'm a sinner. Rebuke me with brothers and sisters. What, what do you think iron sharpening iron is all about? That language of the Bible. We are to have every moment in life of our day pressed through the grid of the scriptures, God's word, that we would look more and more like him. Don't be prideful. Be like these tribes. You know, one thing, I'm on a roll here, i got to say this. In the future, later after this story, after, um, after this event takes place, Israel will go on for hundreds more years, and there will come a point where the entire nation will split into two parts because of the wickedness and the folly of the people. Where did that split take place? At the Jordan River between the eastern and western tribes? Like an equator belt, right down the middle the other way. In other words, I think that this act of faithfulness here produced what it was supposed to. Which brings us to the next point. Final point. These guys, they had future generations in mind. This, did you notice this? The entire event took place because those two and a half tribes were looking out for their grandkids. It wasn't for them. 
I'm going to read to you again what it said in verse 24 and 25. This is when they explain why they built the altar. And you notice maybe the wording in there, it's not for offerings, because that would be a sin. It's not for burning things. That's not why it's here. It's to remind people. This is what he said, what, what they say in response. We did it. We built the altar from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. That's why they built it. For their children and their children's children. That's why they built it. This is like totally, there's so few things, if any, that Christians build in our day that we build for our grandkids. Oh, it's no benefit to me. I don't need that. Did you ever think these guys were on their way home from five years absent from their family? Five years. And I admit the text doesn't say they never had a chance to travel home, but it seems likely that they didn't vacate, abdicate the responsibility to battle. Two and a half, two and a half tribes worth of them cross over the Jordan every year-long passage there and settling and come back and return back to battle. I don't think that happened. I'm, I'm guessing they were, they were together in garrison until the battle was over. I think that's what happened. But even if it was a couple of months, that's long time to be away from your kids and your wives. I, I deployed overseas as, as a Marine, and I remember being there with brothers and sisters in arms who missed their families back home. I wasn't married at the time. I didn't have kids. I didn't know that experience. But to, to know the pain of being separated, they're on their way back from this five-year campaign, and rather than rush across that river into the waiting arms of their sons and daughters and wives, they stop because they want to do something. They want to build something for the good of their kids. And whether it took a month, a week, or one, or one day, one day they stopped, it will be worth it for us to have to wait a little longer to see them for the good of the generations to come because we want them to worship the Lord. And we're afraid that these Israelites on this side will cut them out of worship in the future. And we're going to do something now to help make sure that doesn't happen. That's what they did. Their entire plan was forward-looking. And it was honored by God, by the other Israelites. God did not command this monument to be built. But he approved. Because it was done as an act of faithfulness to produce more faithfulness. It's no wonder that this generation was seen as so faithful before God. They were zealous for the right worship of God, willing to put their own lives on the line for it. They were compassionate toward their brothers and patient, even in the face of what they thought was bold apostasy. They responded, one side responded humbly and graciously to that. They received the rebuke. And lastly, Everyone finally approved and agreed that this should go down so that future generations would remain faithful. In conclusion, be reminded again, we're not in the same conditions as the Old Testament peoples. We have a Lord and Savior, Jesus, brought us into a new covenant. We have it better. We have Jesus who promised to be with us. He sent the Holy Spirit to guide us, to be with us today. They back then didn't have the unconditional blessings today like they had back then. You don't do this, you're getting kicked out of the land. Praise be to God. Victory has been proclaimed 
secured, guaranteed by our Lord and our master, King Jesus. But in order for us to move forward into victory in this war, we have to hold each other accountable to obeying the word of God. We must hold a high standard of righteousness and promote an absolute commitment to honor his commands. Brothers and sisters, I think that one of the things that has to happen in the next phase of this Christian battle is we need to rally our troops, we need to recruit some warriors and identify our allies. And in order to do that, we must do it by looking through the grid of God's word as what believers are and ought to be doing. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we acknowledge the war that we're in. We look back at this faithful generation who lived in these days, and we ask that you would help us to learn from that. Help us to be warned to not do the folly that they'll end up into. Help us to be encouraged to do what they have done. Father, I know, I know when you, I preach a sermon like this, it could be easy to, um, to, to take one of two different errors. This is like walking on a, on a narrow strip of road with a ditch on both sides of that street. Lord, I pray that we would not become too quick to judge, but that we would be willing to judge what is condemnable. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that love your word so much that we desire for other believers to forsake their folly. God, I pray that you would help us to acknowledge ours. Let us look at what we, what we believe and what we do. Lord, there's error in our hearts right now. Their sins are battling right now, individually and corporately, and we need those things to be exposed. And if you need to do that through other believers to, to call that out, Lord, let us be quick to receive that in humility. Let us to consider others better than ourselves. Let us to operate like Christ did. And Father, I pray that we would also be willing, be courageous enough to engage at that level with our brothers and sisters in faith. Father, help us to be, be able to do this in that careful, generous, patient way, but willing to do what is necessary to keep your church pure. Lord, we love you and ask for you to help begin with the judgment that starts at the household of God. Lord, you will not, because we are Christians, overlook all of our sins today. The gospel is that those sins have been overlooked and placed onto Jesus in eternity. But Father, let us never forget that here and now we are commanded to obey what you told us to do. Let us be known for that as a church. Let us be quick to welcome in brothers and sisters from all over the world into faithful churches like, like the ones we've been praying for, like those we know in this valley that we're so grateful to, to know. Lord, help them to grow and help them to continue to do your work until we bring every inch of this world under Jesus' dominion. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. And all of God's people said, Amen.